2: Okay, City Limits, it's the uh, second Wednesday of the month. We're doing energy issues and we're talking to Anna Langford from um, Friends of the Earth today about climate uh, change. It's in the news, of course, obviously, because we're leading up to Glasgow and we'll be talking to her in the second half of the program. I'm Kevin Healy and Zeb Peaks here with us. Karina's pressing the buttons and... We're all um we're all having a lovely time in, in lockdown <laughs> and hopefully getting out of lockdown pretty shortly. And of course we are pre recording this. We're doing this on Tuesday morning as it turns out this week. And we should we should also mention, I think, Zeb the uh, and Karina, not only the great work that you both do intuitive put- guide to sit here and talk, but you put all this together subsequently, but also the role three CR staff are playing these days in keeping the show on the air because unlike Unlike the commercial stations and or the ABC even, um, we, we weren't, as you know, we, we work on a very, very limited income and very limited budget, and yet through all that, the staff are keeping the show going, and I think it's a great credit to them.
1: Yeah, and just on that, you can find uh, any of our previous podcasts if you go to 3cr.org.au forward slash city limits, and also... Always welcome to, to donate, even if it's not on time. Kevin, do you have any tea with you? Should we do a tea pouring?
2: Yeah, I was about to do it. You've, you've opened it up. I've, I've especially got the tea here. Just to, here we go. Oh, how was that?
1: Oh, that was perfect audio. <laughs> what tea do you have today?
2: We've got a, a straight jasmine today, Chinese jasmine. It's lovely. Lovely, and and a few items. We have you got any items you wanted to raise before I get rave start raving on?
1: Oh, you head on.
2: <laughs> well, the the couple just one I thought was absolutely fascinating, and there was a headline in paper last um, Wednesday last week on an international page: Tories fret over Johnson's tilt to the left. This is out of Britain, of course, and I, I just think we leave it at that. I mean, uh, Johnson's tilt. To the left, for God's sake! What would they call a genuine tilt to the left if he's left?
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know what would be the like minute measurement of a tilt to the left for that. You'd have to go smaller
2: <laughs> than nanometers. Yeah, I think I think you're right. If he's gone to the left, it's very minute. <laughs> That's absolutely certain. The the other uh, one, I uh, a more serious one, the the greens here in Victoria are calling and i'm sure they'll get away with it but uh, hopefully they will they've called for a parliamentary inquiry into the far-right extremists who of course were heavily involved in the scenes in melbourne a couple of weeks ago and they they say that they're concerned about it of course and they say history has shown us what happens when you don't act on the threat of the far-right these groups are a threat to victoria's multicultural communities victoria's cohesion and democracy we've seen this organization and this growth of the far right erupt in the most violent of ways in the streets of melbourne and they said the pandemic had provided a breeding ground for dangerous far right and white supremacist ideology to run and take hold so let's hope that the the parliament agrees to that when it finally gets around a meeting again i suppose and they can we need some sort of inquiry It'd be good to see the state get involved in in taking on those people i think in that sort of inquiry We'll wait and see.
1: Yeah, it is worrying how um, the far right have managed to capitalise on all of the uncertainty during the pandemic and sort of leap on the back of things like vaccine uncertainty and kind of be able to recruit people that way.
2: Yes, hope they're not recruiting too many, but the, <laughs> the numbers on the streets are pretty pretty disturbing because yeah. they're. Obviously, getting to whether all those people, of course, can see themselves as far right is another question, but many of them would. And certainly, there was a clear presence of those people at those rallies, and it's very disturbing. Another item I thought worth raising, because we have talked a couple of times, and in climate change, of course, we've mentioned the, the wonderful role that school students and young people are playing in in addressing the issue and trying to make the generations ahead of them wake up. The, it's an elite school, but Melbourne Girls' Grammar, uh, it is uh, having a vote, and in fact, the result will be known this week. I'm not sure what the result will be, but hopefully it'll be good. But the, their houses at the school, most, all but one are named after people who have some connection to the school, but one house is called Batman, and the the school, the students from year four to 12 and, and the alumni are, are going to vote, are voting at the moment on renaming Batman to something that's more, in fact, they're thinking of using William Cooper, the Aboriginal leader. So there, here we have these young people saying, yes, we think Batman isn't an appropriate name. And in fact... A statement on the school's website says Batman was not only the broker of the notorious treaty, but a participant in the Tasmanian Black Wars, which culminated in the murder of more than a thousand Aboriginal people. So uh, again, it's an encouraging sign that young people are starting to wake up to some of the some of the dreadful history of this country.
1: Yeah, that is really encouraging. And there was uh, a similar thing at Melbourne University a while back where I think the maths building was named after someone that had been part of the university. I now can't remember their name and, to be honest, I don't really want to remember that, that was sort of involved in the eugenics movement. And there were quite a few of these people that were prominent in Melbourne University and had buildings named after them, but there's been a move to rename those buildings as well.
2: Yeah, okay. I misread that because, in fact, the the William Cooper has replaced the name Batman at Northcote High School for one of its schoolhouses. So they haven't actually said. I think the the other school, the Melbourne Girls, wanted to name name it after someone who has some connection to the school. But nonetheless, it's the same principle. They're getting rid of Batman.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and on um, school children, there's also the school strike for climate coming up. This Friday, I'm pretty sure, October the 15th. So a reminder for people to get on board with that.
2: Yeah, how's that going to work this week with the lockdown? Is it going to be, do you know how they're going to do it?
1: From what I've seen, there's a sort of nationwide organisation of small rallies that are going to be as COVID safe as possible. So I'm thinking that it's going to be varying depending on what location you are in Australia, but there should be a way for everyone to participate, so I think you can go to like the School Strike for Climate website and see whether there's anything happening in your area or whether there's a way to participate online as well.
2: Well, whatever happens, let's hope it's a hope it's big and um again yeah. it gets uh, it gets the message across yes, uh, but just a couple of interesting points. A report was done, was commissioned by the fossil fuel industry about gas, and the report said uh, projections from the Australian energy market operator and feedback from gas industry leaders suggest the nit- liquefied li- national gas sector is unlikely to increase consumption significantly in the next 10 years beyond current levels under any modelled scenario. Net zero commitments by our major trading partners, Japan, China and South Korea, will increasingly put downward pressure on total demand, while Australia's domestic gas consumption was only expected to remain steady. So they're saying that we should keep doing because not much is going to happen. But a separate report was made for one of the environmental groups, and it said that significant and even growing demand for gas in the next few decades... Um, The International Energy Agency's 2020 World Energy Outlook underscores this potential projecting consistent growth in the global demand for gas to 2040, particularly in Australia's trading markets in Asia. And so you've got two two reports that put totally opposite points of view of what's going to happen to gas, which is all very well, one for a, a climate change group and one for the fossil fuel group itself, the second one actually was for the Fossil Fuel Group because it said it's going to increase and it's great. The The interesting thing there is, though, that both reports were done by Ernst & Young, one of the big four consulting companies in the world. So they did, they did a report for each side and said totally opposite things in each one. They just said what the client wanted to hear, which I found quite fascinating and how these people work.
1: Yeah. Did they work from exactly the same data but somehow managed to...
2: Like, <laughs> well, they, <laughs> oh yeah! They, <laughs> don't worry about the data for God's sake. Just give them what they want to hear.
1: Yeah, that's oh well. I don't know. I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but it is worrying that I don't know. It just kind of shows that.
2: Oh, it's. I think it's part of the course. It, just as an, an interesting aside, there was a feature article last weekend in one of the liftouts about paul keating and how he came to do a to do a deal with indonesia and it said it was because even way back then he was concerned about containing china but it, it opens by saying paul keating remembers exactly where he was when he first started thinking about indonesia he was on a sydney suburban train it was 1965 and he was 21 I was on a red rattler from Bangstown in this tunnel going towards St. Peter's and, st- and stopped where the train was half in the light and half in the darkness, halfway in and out of the tunnel. And as I was reading a newspaper article about Suharto had knocked over the Indonesian Communist Party, and it was a crystallising moment. I was in this railway carriage, and there you have the foundation of the Keating government's foreign policy. So he read about the knocking over of the Communist Party, which included the murder of millions of people, Yes, and yet he then went into agreements and and did treaties and deals and and in fact military deals as well with Sahato, the person who had slaughtered the Communist Party. But at no point does he say he even bothered to raise the problem that Suharto and uh, that um, that in fact he Suharto had, had murdered millions of, 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 not just communists, but people generally on the left and all sorts of people in that coup that he staged at that time. So Kenning didn't think the murder, obviously, was all that important. That was just an an observation I noted when I read Uh, the article, that's all.
1: Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. And the extent of Australia's negative impact on Indonesia and Indonesian politics in general.
2: and it's also the little matter, of course, while um, the Indonesian people themselves aren't involved, but there's the little matter of the treatment of East Timor and, and the ongoing treatment in West Papua, of course, that needs to be raised in these matters. But anyway, that's what they're doing. The, the also um, Elon Musk, of course, is is regarded as some sort of tech guru as we know and he's tesla car but he's also got very right-wing politics and a former a black former employee was awarded 188 million dollars in damages this week because of because of racism and what he experienced as racism working for uh musk's company so just that was mentioned. Worth mentioning that Musk company got paid or he got forced to pay 188 million damages because of racism on the in the workplace from a bloke who, who apart from everything else he's doing, is quite a conservative right wing uh, person politically. So there you are. He's
1: yeah. I think it, it's hard to imagine how there could be a billionaire that w- wasn't right wing.
2: I suppose you're right when you think about it. Yeah, that's still a bad point. <laughs> Hang on. How long have I got to think about that one?
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, I'll try and grumble an answer next week. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, yeah. I I found a couple of interesting news articles as well. Um, there was one from the West Australian by someone called Georgie Moore that says coal expected to be offline by mid-2030s. Uh and this one starts off, coal is leaving Australia's national energy market much faster than initially thought and is expected to be offline by the mid-2030s. I don't really know what offline exactly means, but um, that's the assessment of outgoing Energy Security Board Chair Kerry Schott. And there's a quote from them saying, coal is inextricably leaving the system and will be- leave faster than initially thought. Um it's struggling to make money and uh, she even describes Cole as being what coaches were to the motor car. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> sort of another like nail in the coffin to Cole.
2: It's interesting and I think that's part of, the fact that business—and we'll talk to Anna about this later—but business is suddenly seeing the light and it's it's realised there's money to be made in the reverse in renewables rather than uh, rather than fossils. And so suddenly business is virtually leading the way as far as governments concerned, and perhaps making government wake up as well. And yes, they and that that's reflected in that article, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and that's just like what Elon Musk is. He's just a climate capitalist that maybe saw the advantage of a transition to renewables, an economic and, like, personal advantage to a transition in renewables earlier than than some others, like, rather than anyone that...
2: that yes, and, and because the other side of that at the moment is because as the government is drag-kicking and screaming toward doing something about climate change just with pressure coming to, coming upon them from all sorts of directions. At the same time, Keith Pitt, the resources minister, uh, you probably saw it last week, he's come up with a, an idea for a $250 billion loan facility as a loan, lender of last resort to the coal industry. So he actually wants to, and, and he actually said this would help with the transition. So presumably if you give $250 billion to, to coal to keep it going, you transition from coal to, presumably coal. Uh, and so, anyway, so you've got a government that's prepared to put, give $250 billion to that. You've also got um, the minister, uh, I think I mentioned this last week, but Susan Lee, the, the, the environment minister, has approved an extension of a coal mine at Tarmor in New South Wales for an extra 33 million tonnes of coal and it's a 10-year extension of the mine. At the same time as as she's saying in in writing articles in in another lift-out piece about the environment, that we need to do things, and she has talked about the wonderful things Australia is doing in in facing up to climate change, and yet at the same time she's approving mines, and she's approved a number of extensions to coal mines and gas, uh, gas drilling in recent times and she's the one of course whom the young people went to court and and the court ruled that she had an obligation or a to 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 them in terms of future generations but she denies that and she's currently appealing that decision and this is government plus we know what the national party are carrying on about so this is a government that while being dragged kicking and screaming also has within its own membership people who are going in absolutely opposite direction approving coal mines proving money for coal mines and in fact also um the other one Tien, obviously not Tien, um angus taylor has given a thirty million dollar government grant to the Port Kembla gas processing plant that Fortescue, that um, Twiggy Forest wants to build, and here had the second richest person in the country been given thirty million of public money, as a to start up a a plant that will use coal. Now Twiggy himself says, "Oh, but eventually it's going to be pure green hydrogen." But Angus Taylor saying this is part of our gas-led recovery. So poor old Scott Morrison has all these people pushing in opposite directions on him. And uh, But it's interesting to see that we've got a government while it's talking the talk now about maybe doing something about climate change. In fact, in many ways doing the absolute opposite.
1: Yeah, that's right. And the other thing kind of coupled with climate change that is in the news at the moment is global bi- uh, global biodiversity and the Kunming conference that is coming up which is another thing that Australia is falling behind in uh, and there was an article in the Guardian about this that says that more than 1,500 of Australia's unique ecosystems aren't represented in any of the nation's protected areas and that Many nationally significant species and ecosystems have no protections at all because they occur outside these designated protected areas. So, yes, good news on that.
2: <laughs> yes, it's uh, that's you know it's an important connection. With, well, it's part of climate change as well, but also the fact that those um, housing next week. But we're seeing particularly in you know the outer suburbs the extension. They keep having, they keep putting in. The, the green belts around cities, but then, as soon as developers want to move into those areas, they just break them down and they just they, they mean nothing. they just keep extending, and every time you build over rare grasslands and and various and environmental and ecological areas on the edge of melbourne it 's totally destroyed forever uh, once it 's gone and we're we 're encroaching on that all the time, and of course, as we 've said many times when you 're doing that you 're also taking over. The um, the areas of the of the particular of the particular fauna that lives there, apart from the flora, the fauna, and we're encroaching on their territory, and then we complain when they uh, suddenly turn up in our suburban areas that we've taken over.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and well, it also highlights this difficulty that governments always seem to have of siloing issues and not being able to adequately address the ways that they interact so it's obvious that biodiversity and climate change are linked but i mean in a sense it makes sense to separately have a conference that's just dedicated to biodiversity because it has been underlooked but it is just interesting i suppose that often these conversations get separated out and the impact of climate change on biodiversity isn 't necessarily considered, and everyone is very focused on like other effects that climate change might have or yeah i 'm not really explaining myself very well, but hopefully you understand what i 'm saying <laughs>
2: yeah well it, well the the temperature changes can mean that certain animals can 't survive in the new in the new environment, number one, but also of course situations like the the devastating bushfires two summers ago. Well last year, um, they they devastate the environments, they devastate the uh, the the life within those forests and within the areas that are burnt out and we know that you know it's 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 a tragedy that the number the literally millions of creatures were destroyed in those fires, apart from the impact on on our on us as animals in this society.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so if Australia is planning on signing on to this Kunming Declaration then we should absolutely be signing up for a concerted effort of active action on climate change because you can't have one without the other.
2: No, abs- no, you can't. And uh, but of course, we now know that Scott's starting to see the light. It's the pressures on him. But <laughs> as, as we mentioned later, even Rupert Murdoch's seen the light. He's suddenly he's he's running. He's running uh, a programme about going green, which is hard to believe from Rupert. But I hope he doesn't upset his mate Andrew Bolt, who thinks this is because he he says it doesn't. You know, the world's getting the world's getting cooler, according to Andrew. I think.
1: Yeah, well, I'm just amazed that people still listen to anything Andrew Bolt says. But he does have a following.
2: I think most people surely would ignore the man, wouldn't they? But you'd hope so. You'd hope so. Another interesting point, um, and we must be getting close to time, but to go to Anna. But the privatisation of airports um, a few years ago, the federal government, which owned all the airports, has privatised, them, so they become they become monopolies in their own cities, and make heaps of money. But it's also been revealed that major australian airports copped up co2 emissions equal to four coal-fired power plants in 2019 this was an analysis of uh, global analysis which criticized the sustainability report standards as outdated and unhelpful in the race to cut the aviation sector's rapidly growing contribution to global warming um, sydney airport for instance report Scope 1 and 2 emissions, but only Scope 3 emissions from the aircraft taking off and landing. So the rest of the trip is counted as Scope 3, which is the ongoing effect of what you do. Uh, and so here we have airports privatised, which are making a major contribution to, to the greenhouse effect. But also, we also, of course, privatised Qantas. And yet we handed out... $5 billion so far, with $5 billion has been handed out to the airlines and to the airports as part of the COVID recovery. And at the moment, you've got. The, the irony that people, that, that Qantas, which rips off all over the place and sacks heaps and heaps of workers, one is now going to spend millions of dollars to buy new aircraft, but at the same time it couldn't afford to keep its staff on, so it would sack thousands of them, but also it's complaining because the airports want to put up their charges to the airlines and they're saying, isn't this terrible, you're, you're abusing your monopoly, And, um, so you've got a situation where two, two groups that would in the first place have been owned by us fighting each other over the, over the effects of monopoly capital, I suppose. And the other irony is that the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission has urged the airlines not to put up their, the airports not to put up their prices too much because uh, all they can do is plead with them they've got no real power over it because we don't own it anymore and the other factor of course in all that is that the five billion we've handed out we wouldn't have had a handout if we still owned them we wouldn't have had the income from them because they wouldn't have been used but nonetheless it would it's five billion dollars that not only having having sold them off originally it's five billion dollars we now have to give to them or we don't have to give them but they have given it to them when we could have saved that 5 billion if we owned them if we still owned them in the first place so it's another impact of course of the privatization process that that ongoing continues to cost the public purse long term
1: mm, yeah it's it's another example of how the the government sells off these things but they can't get rid of the the responsibility in the end and so they they're always going to carry that risk and so it just doesn't make
0: sense.
2: <laughs> well, you lose the income. That's the awful thing. They, they talk about what they get, but they don't talk about the fact that they you lose an income that's, that's important to you ongoing. And once you've sold it, of course, that's... And the, over the term, like the State Electricity Commission and the Gas and Fuel Corporation here in Victoria poured millions of dollars into the public coffers. Which no longer goes into the public coffers, and all the promises of more efficiency and lower prices, well, just a joke. <laughs> so yes, it's it's well, I think've we've, we've said from the outset, but it's you know I don't think we need to tell our listeners that privatization is a very bad thing for the public generally.
1: Yeah, you not only lose income but you lose power and you lose uh, expertise to the private businesses. But you gain uh, some money in the very short term. <laughs>
2: that's right. Which soon dissipates, of course. And so, you, as you say, you lose power. like I say, that you've got a you've got a public authority pleading with them not to put the fares up. But that's the best they can do—just plead with them.
1: All right. Well, on that cheerful note, you've been listening to Big on Up. We'll go to a short break now, and after that, we'll be talking to Anna Langford from Friends of the Earth about upcoming COP26 and other matters.
2: I think we're having a pretty cheery little show this morning. Let's hope the second half of the program can cheer people up even more.
3: 3CR.
0: City Limits producer Karina here. I thought I would play a couple of climate-related tunes for you on the show this week. This one is by local artist Abe Donovitz. It's called Get Out Talk. Hope you enjoy it.
1: are upon you. All right, back on City Limits and today we're interviewing Anna Langford from Act on Climate, a Friends of the Earth group, to talk about a number of things but first of all how are you going Anna?
0: Oh yeah, I've started saying I'm going COVID good, like good with an asterisk, yes. <laughs> just you know, because I'm like relatively good compared to a lot of people's situations but the world's just a funny place at the moment how I are you doing a really
1: good way. I think yeah I can also say I'm going COVID good
2: I think we're all just going COVID okay that's right yeah and that's why we're pre-recording of course at this stage and um etc yeah but Anna um yeah well you're here because of you know we're leading up to Glasgow of course and um comments on where we're heading in that direction
0: yeah, so pretty major final month in the lead-up to the COP26 climate summit, and um it feels weird that none of us can actually go there for such a big moment and that, you know, in our lack of being able to go, our Prime Minister is still only just considering whether or not it's important enough to go to. But, yeah, as a recap for anyone, the COP26 climate summit is the global meeting of world leaders that happens every year Um, and this one COP26 is particularly important because it's where all countries are expected to increase their current climate policy ambition. So as we've seen earlier in the year the United States and United Kingdom among many other countries have already quite significantly increased their 2030 climate target ambition meaning emissions reduction target. but we still haven't seen anything coughed up by Australia well by the federal government. So yeah it's a, it's a pretty anxious lead up as we wait to see if actually anything substantial will come because we have to come up with something but yeah will it be the bare minimum or anything near what we actually need?
2: Yeah, probably will be the bare minimum. I mean, the the government, they claim that in the next day or two, they're going to sort out their differences with the National Party and announce something next week. But already I've heard Morrison say that he won't make it legislation. He'll just uh, just say what we're going to do, but they won't legislate to ensure it's actually going to happen. So it sounds like they're going to do some watered-down version just to try to get to Glasgow looking like they're doing something.
0: Mm, yeah exactly. and it would be really worrying if it was just an aspirational announcement, not a locked in you know policy with any kind of binding and I think the astonishing thing thinking about like the main excuse that's been used for lack of federal action being the infighting between the nationals and the liberals, and yet yeah, just the general more conservative wing of the coalition is that we've actually seen that problem overcome just a couple of weeks ago in the New South Wales government. For anyone who missed it, the New South Wales Liberal National Government recently announced that they would increase their 2030 emissions reduction target to 50%, which takes it up to one of the highest targets in the country. And that was done by uniting the the policy needs of the Liberals and Nationals and including big investments in regional areas in renewable energy expansion and other industries' um, assistance to reduce emissions. So, like, it has been done at a state level by a coalition government with very little drama and therefore, you know, it's just ridiculous that it's still carrying on the way it is at the national level.
1: Yeah, and do you think that perhaps that's where the focus might be most beneficial for activists um, to, like, pressure at a state level for states and territories to make commitments? Or Mm. I guess um, what's your sort of plan of action at Act on Climate at the moment?
0: Yeah, yeah, really good question. And I think that is what Friends of the Earth's main tactic uh, or strategy has been for the last few years under the federal coalition government Um, We have really put our focus on the state government, the Victorian state government, to see how much can we get done at the state level in lieu of any kind of federal leadership on climate. And I think there's, like, there's really a lot of merit to that approach for the long term anyway because so many aspects of climate policy and the different industries that we need to reduce emissions in are primarily controlled by state policy rather than federal policy. Um, federal, like, it's it's kind of more like, you know, the states get the money doled out to them by the feds to unroll the policies that they need to. So it is, of course, super important to have that nationally united direction from the federal government. But we've found that focusing on the state level over the last few years, we have managed to achieve an incredible amount of, Including Victoria's first emissions reduction target of 45 to 50% by 2030, which we'll be fighting to get increased when the evaluation process starts next year, along with our renewable energy target and, um, yeah, like a, just a whole lot of awareness in communities spread of how much we can actually get done at the state level. I think, though, in the lead up to COP, we have shifted our focus to the federal level because it is just so important to have that united ambition being led by the federal government um, on the international stage and also to signal to um, business and investors like what our overall direction is and what new industries actually really need new um, money being invested in them.
2: Yeah, and Anna, I think what we're seeing, of course, is a government that suddenly realised that the population is like years ahead of it in terms of wanting something done, which we've been saying for a long, long time. And big business now realises it's suddenly coming into the picture, because it's not because it uh, really cares, I don't think, but because it sees there's actually money to be made, and you're going to lose them in the long term if you stick with fossils. Even Rupert Murdoch this week's come out; he's suddenly a greenie. Uh, although he does say we should keep continue to export coal as long as it, people, there's a demand for it, uh, but I noticed Deloitte Economics last week, Deloitte Access came out with a figure of we it, it would cost us 73 billion a year by 2060 if we don't do something about climate change. Catastrophic risks would would uh, cost us a fortune, and of course we saw the the Samoan. Um, Prime Minister, the new Prime Minister of Samoa, come out last week and tell and tell Morrison that in fact, he, he one, he ought to go to Glasgow, but also she said he should uh, be aware of the unlivable conditions if regional powers fail to wind down their carbon emissions with the march of climate change through the Pacific. And she came out and talked about um, science, not silence, in an attack on Morris, and she didn't. I don't think she named him specifically, but she was obviously aiming at him. So there's a lot of pressure on the government, isn't there?
0: Oh, totally. Yeah, and I think. Well, firstly, it yeah, it's a really sensible way to talk about the cost of climate change in terms of yeah what the impacts down the track will cost us, rather than the upfront cost of you know transitioning our economy now. You know, like as they say an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure and yeah, whatever we ramp up now will save us a lot of destruction and, um, and money and yeah, like effort down the track. And yeah, I think like it's really interesting to see the pressure coming at the Morrison government from all angles, like from international and business, which is, you know, seeing, where the uh, where the money's flowing internationally as bigger countries make stronger commitments um but also again from the states which as you said before like communities around australia have been ahead of the government for years and one way we can see that is that every state and territory already has a commitment to get to net zero emissions by 2050 so basically if the morrison government um announces that they're committing to net zero by 2050, it's literally nothing new. Like, by default, Australia already has that commitment because every state and territory does, including Victoria's, which is actually legally binding in our law now. And um, the other interesting thing is that, like, as we know, 2030 is the important year to think about when it comes to cutting emissions, not 2050. This is the big decade of transition that needs to happen and where we need to do the heaviest lift when it comes to cutting emissions. And when you combine the 2030 emissions reduction targets of the states and territories, Australia also by default has a 2030 emissions reduction target of about 37%. So Basically, if the Morrison government announces anything less than that, then it would actually be less than what we're already on track to achieve. Um, And I actually, I haven't seen much awareness of that in the media so far. So it's a good thing. There was speculation
2: in in yesterday's, sorry, there was speculation in yesterday's financial review that they'd they'd up their twenty thirty target to 30%. uh, But it's also 30% Based on 2005 figures, and the 2005 was chosen originally because it was a a favourable year for the government in terms of what you start your starting point. So, their starting point, in fact, is quite low.
0: Oh, yeah, completely. Like lifting our 26 to 28% target by a measly two to four percent would actually be putting us behind economically and when it comes to emissions reduction when you look at the trajectory we're already on um and yeah like i think we'll we'll start to see you know as, as you said before like big business like the even the business council of australia get more and more frustrated with this approach it's amazing to see the shift there from for example two years ago when Victoria was consulting with communities and businesses and other organisations on what its 2030 emissions reduction target should be, and uh, the Business Council, among many others, made a submission calling for basically, like, minimal ambition before 2030 because of the, like, quote-unquote uncertainty of having different policies between different states and no direction from the federal level. And now they've completely upped the ante and basically just saying to the federal government, like, we need united leadership on this.
1: Mm -hmm. And also now from a big business level to a worker level, um, I know you mentioned when we were organising for this interview that another thing that you're doing is working, uh, engaging with union members to do with climate impacts in the workplace. So maybe we can segue into that and um, Mm. you can tell us a little bit about what that's about.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. So that's one of the other things that Friends of the Earth is doing at the moment or that I'm coordinating through Friends of the Earth is this really awesome work with the union movement to basically get union members talking about the climate impacts that they're already experiencing in their workplaces in different industries around the state and like I, I've been involved in the union movement for quite a few years since I first got involved when they were leading their big campaign to make wage theft a crime in Victoria because I'd been working at a cafe that I got fired from for like standing up to our bosses because we were all being underpaid and um, you know that campaign was one last year which was incredible to see but I just yeah like I guess I'm always thinking about you know whatever gains we make for workers like that you know we'll lose that if climate change accelerates to the point that it's just impossible to protect people from the impacts so I think while we're seeing liberals and big business and the Murdoch press starting to lift the baseline and talk about some sort of climate action I don't think it's going to be the climate action that protects workers and has workers' justice at the center and does anything to you know tackle the already insecure working um, crisis so I think talking about climate through the lens of occupational health and safety and workers' justice is just going to become more and more important and yeah we're we're going to be doing this really cool project with a bunch of unions where we're going to be surveying their members on what climate impacts they're experiencing in the workplace and also what solutions they want to see from governments.
2: And that, of course, involves also being involved in the transition of workers in the high polluting industries back to doing work that is in fact not polluting. I mean, that, that's that got to be an important part of where we go.
0: Mm yeah yeah exactly um so like t- thinking about that the big economic transitions that we'll need to make um but also thinking about the industries that are going to be grow in importance particularly the predominantly feminized care economy industries that are going to be needed and need to be much more highly valued in every city and regional area that their services are needed in you know like They're already on the front lines of a lot of climate impacts, um, such as heat waves and intensifying bushfires and other extreme weather. They're essentially often becoming first responders to these kinds of disasters. So, like, we really want to bring those stories and experiences to the forefront. And (laughs) i'll do my plug now if you'd like to come along to the launch event of this survey project then we would love to have you join us on zoom on october 27 in the evening you can find the details for that on our friends of the earth melbourne website on the events page and yeah you'll just need to rsvp to get the zoom link but we've got some awesome speakers for that including um, Colin Long from Trades Hall and Godfrey Mose from the United Workers' Union and uh, an Australian Nurses and Midwifery Federation member, Sasha King, who's um, a nurse that's also part of Act on Climate Collective.
1: Yeah, we'll put those details in the show notes as well and I'm certainly really interested to come to that. What I was going to say earlier was just that I feel like that's a, an important angle that the health and safety and sort of yeah like protecting workers from the impacts of climate change is something that hasn't been talked about enough and so i'm really interested to hear more about it and it just immediately made me think about the jobs that i do and have done in the past and like how they've already been affected like how working on a really hot day is can be almost impossible and can getting to work when there's smoke in the air, like all of these things that are we're going to have to face more and more frequently in the future are really important to consider.
4: Mm.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, like, even just, you know, the way you're able to so easily talk about it really viscerally, like, you know, remembering kind of what it's like during a heat wave working or during the bushfire smoke, um, I think that's just really important for people to... Realise that, you know, they they have kind of the, the on-the-ground experience and agency to talk about climate impacts in this way now. I meet a lot of people who think they're not, quote-unquote, qualified to talk about climate change because they're not a climate scientist or um, an economist and they don't have all the stats up their sleeve. But, like, really, you know, because climate change is is already happening, we can already speak to experiences like that Um, And, you know, make the case for action that way. So I'm, I'm really excited to do this kind of deep work with people in all these different industries that aren't really talked about much yet when it comes to climate change.
2: Although having knowing nothing about it doesn't seem to stop, hasn't stopped Rupert Murdoch and lackeys like Andrew Bolt, boom prepared to comment about it for years. Uh, but the other side of all that, of course, is that as business does get more involved, it's now, it's now giving the impression that market forces and business itself is the only solution to climate change, whereas in the past it's been, and it may continue to be in many ways, the cause of the problem in the first place.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we will see that argument made a lot, maybe especially in favour of uh, less government involvement um, by a lot of business bodies. And, like, I I mean, I just think that's completely wrong because, you know, it's these kind of government um, climate targets that have, like, driven a lot of the initial business and industry when it comes to climate action. And we, you know, we need that kind of, united like approach when it comes to actually having goals down the track and being able to chart our progress like you know even the moon landings were a sort of government ambition that was you know had a 10-year timeline set to it they said we're going to get to the moon before 1970 and then like that drove the development of the technology like fast enough to make it happen (laughs)
2: <laughs> yes yeah, so and the other course, point of this of course is that business continues to talk about growth and we can we can achieve this still have growth still increase energy use really long term we have to start talking about reducing the amount of energy we use don't we in our society if we're really going to achieve real change
0: yeah definitely i, I think that, that's an area that way less uh people in government uh ready to even touch yet but of course like we know that the myth of endless sustainable growth um is just you know like it's it's not really a feasible idea because like the idea of growth itself means in continual increased resource consumption and like we just can't keep doing that at, at the rate and scale that we are um even if it means you know using like green materials or renewable energy, that all still requires resources that, you know, has some kind of footprint. So, like, I hope that the conversation about, like, actually challenging the idea of continuous economic growth really spreads more in coming years.
1: Um, we don't <laughs> want to keep you uh, any longer because we don't want to <laughs> stop you from getting to your next commitment for the day. But thank you so much for coming on to City Limits 3CR uh, and talking about these issues. Um, and once again, we'll direct people to go to the Friends of the Earth webpage and look up Act on Climate to find out more about the event that you have coming up. Anything last that you want to put in before we finish up the interview?
0: Yeah, I guess, like, let's just all... Keep our eyes on COP26 as it comes up. And, you know, if you're on Twitter or like Facebook or anything, but probably particularly Twitter, because that's, you know, where you can grab the attention of our politicians. Like, let's just all really put the pressure on to talk about 2030, not 2050, because um, that's the crucial year we need to get in everyone's heads. So, um thanks so much for having me on. And uh, I, I hope we can do it in the studio next time. <laughs>
2: we, we all do, Anna. But look, briefly, just before you go, because there's another COP conference taking place this week into biodiversity and the loss of species and extinctions. Uh, there's a direct relationship there, of course, too, isn't there, with climate change?
0: Um, yeah, and I, I I don't know so much about that one. But, yeah, I think, like, it's often a part of the conversation that's left out or, like, sort of forgotten Because the prime focus tends to be renewable energy um, rather than kind of, you know, the intricate, complicated um, biodiversity that we need to, like, actually have way more front of mind when it comes to both reducing emissions and increasing resilience of the land to coming impacts. So, um, yeah, like, I, I think that that's another really important factor to turn our attention to.
2: Thanks for your time this morning. It's been great.
1: Thanks well, so much for coming on and no have a COVID good rest of the day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you too. Thanks Santa. so much. See you all soon. Bye.
1: Okay, that's it for City Limits this week. Uh, next week will be our housing week. Do you know who we're talking to um, about housing next week, Kevin?
2: Um, I'm hoping to be talking to the new union that's formed, the uh, new public, the new housing union that's been taking action around rentals and things, um, as well as our usual housing suspects. We'll hopefully have someone from the Housing for the Aged Action Group and Friends of Public Housing. So, yeah, next week, housing.
0: Thanks for tuning into City Limits this week. I'm going to leave you with another climate-related tune by Billy No Mates. This one's called Heels. Don't forget to stay tuned to 3CR Community Radio to listen to Anarchist World this week with Joe Toscano
1: coming up next.
3: I did not come dressed. call on me anytime emergency telephone is is always on my mind but when it comes to your doorstep you better be ready